HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by Cane Vineyard and Winery, a Napa Valley winery committed to respecting the soil and dedicated to the creation of three Cabernet blends. For more information, visit Cane5.com. I'm Erica Wides, host of Let's Get Real, the cooking show about finding, preparing, and eating food. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit HeritageRadioNetwork.org for thousands more. Good afternoon and welcome. This is What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer, and uh, we'll be talking today about caviar. Um, My guest is Michelle Nyhaus, who writes about science and the environment for National Geographic and other publications. She is also a contributing writer for Smithsonian and a longtime contributing editor of High Country News, a magazine known for its in-depth coverage of environmental issues in the American West. Her most recent piece is Caviar's Last Stand. She published it simultaneously with FERN, which is the Food and Environmental Reporting Network, which I have been promoting since their inception. I had their editor-in-chief Sam Fromarts on when they launched the site, um, and I have continued to read it avidly and support whatever uh, in whatever way I can by inviting their authors on. They always have great articles. This one is no exception. Uh, the media partner for this particular piece was Medium.com, and it is about the loss of a species, basically in the service of gluttony, whether for money or for food. It all boils down to greed, and we have basically fished out every possible source of caviar. So Michelle, welcome to the show. Tell us about uh, why you wrote this piece and what got you interested. Michelle? Uh, Can you hear me? Yeah, I can now. Okay. Can you hear me okay? Yeah. Um, Thanks so much for having me. Oh, sure. um, As you said, I I write about environmental issues and I'm always interested in in ways of bringing environmental issues home to people's mm-hmm. uh, front yards or plates, <laughs> in this case. And um, I found out about this story in a way that I almost never find out about stories, and that was through a boring old press release from the Fish and Wildlife Service, which no said, hey, you know, these um, we have issued indictments for these um, eight people who have been involved with um, paddlefish poaching for caviar, and I had never... I'd, I'd heard of caviar poaching, but I assumed that it, most of it took place around the Caspian Sea in Eastern Europe, and the idea of caviar poaching in the Midwest was 
very surprising to me, and I wanted to learn more about it. Yeah, very surprising. I mean, it's hardly what you... I mean, you're talking about Missouri, like the Ozarks, right? Right. Yeah, I mean, you're talking about a community that you don't think of as even really eating caviar, much less knowing enough to, um, you know, poach uh, the fish in order to sell it on the black market abroad. I mean, the whole thing just... (laughs) I couldn't get over how funny it was, actually, on a certain level. I mean, of course, it's horrible uh, that these fish are being abused this way. Um, But it was also very kind of like so uh, Ripley's Believe It or Not to me. I mean, it was just a crazy story. yeah. Yeah, Yeah, it's fascinating, and it's a real cultural collision. I mean, a lot of the poaching these days is being done by Russian and Ukrainian immigrants who grew up eating caviar on special occasions and and really, you know, have a strong emotional connection to it and and have also, you know, and most of those, a lot of those people are are fishing for this so-called American caviar um, perfectly legally, but there's a small minority of people who are um, who are approaching it for money, and uh-huh. they know how valuable it is because it's valuable to them. It's emotionally valuable to them, and they know how financially valuable it is. Well, let's. I mean, let's talk about the numbers. What kind of um, money are we talking about here? I mean, you had some pretty astonishing figures there. Yeah. Well, the. I should back up a little bit and say that the, the caviar we're talking about is, is caviar in quotes. It's um, caviar that comes from paddlefish, which are a relative of sturgeon, which is the, the family of fish that supply the world with, you know, the, the very fancy caviar we know. And paddlefish are, are also, like sturgeon, big, rare, slow-growing fish that produce a lot of eggs, and the eggs can be um, processed in the same way that and caviar is processed, and they can—they don't taste quite as good um, to to gourmets as um, as sturgeon from uh, sturgeon uh, roe, as they call it, from mm-hmm. Eastern Europe. But it tastes good enough to fool people, especially people who don't eat caviar that often. Right. And so, people have figured out that you can label paddlefish caviar as Russian caviar and sell it in New York City or sell it to airlines or cruise lines, and people really don't know the difference. So it's not that paddlefish caviar, you can buy paddlefish caviar legitimately, um, not very, you know, not a very high price, but you can sell it um, labeled as Russian caviar for anywhere between $250 to $500 an ounce. Yeah. That adds up pretty quickly when when a, a single paddlefish can produce 10 pounds of eggs. Right. Yeah, I was blown away by the numbers. So then, you know, just one fish is worth, you know, forty, fifty, sixty thousand dollars $60,000 to some lucky exactly. guy who has figured out. Of, Sorry, go ahead. It's small, it's lightweight, it yeah. can be very easily smuggled. So, you know, in, in some ways it's, it's the, the ideal um, black market item. It is indeed. I mean, really, and especially now that pot has been legalized in so many countries. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and and I mean the the trade in there's a there's a you know certainly a legitimate trade in in genuine caviar as well as paddlefish caviar, and I've seen estimates that that's about three hundred million dollars worldwide. But the, the Jump, illegitimate Jim. trade in caviar of all sorts is is thought to be more than double that. So. Wow. Well, and you, yeah. and we'll go to this in a minute, but you describe uh, one guy who's been doing this for quite a while who finally was run to earth in Panama or something, and it was estimated. What was his take on the black market? It was something absolutely astonishing, $10 million oh, or... 
Yes, Crazy. at least. At yeah. least. And that was just what he was charged with. I mean, he had been doing it for a long time. And, mm-hmm. and, and he was a also a legitimate caviar importer, and he was just you know, cooking the books and fixing the labels and, and making a lot of money on the side by buying this um, paddlefish caviar much more cheaply and then marking it up as Russian caviar. Right. So um, and it was would a good you also... for him for a long time, and he was on the lam for, I think, more than 20 years. Yeah. He was finally, finally um, you know, taken into court and, and sentenced um, just a few years ago. <laughs> well, I mean, people have got to read this story just to believe it because it's so much fun. Um, but let's talk a little bit about how is caviar produced? I mean, you were talking about like some, some really kind of low rent methods, like putting the, the <laughs> putting the eggs through a paint screen into a bucket and then yeah, salting yeah. them or something. I don't so really know was, anything about um, how caviar is made traditionally. Yeah, so uh, caviar basically, so they're fish eggs that are, are treated in salt water. Mm-hmm. And there's a very precise process um, of when you catch the fish, um, it just you catch the fish um, just before the, the female surgeon is ready to spawn. And supposedly that's when they have a certain texture that's mm-hmm. very pleasing to the mouth. And, and then you carefully screen them through, um, you know, just gently rub them over a screen to remove all the membrane and matter, and then you treat them in salt water, you cure them, and that's when, if you catch them at the right time and you handle them very carefully and you preserve them very carefully, that's when you get this incredible gourmet experience that chefs talk about where you just have this wonderful combination of fat and salt that's exploding in your mouth and, and, and providing this taste that um, really is like no other. Um, so these guys who I talked to a game warden who had gone undercover and posed as a, as a caviar smuggler, and he processed caviar the way that these guys in Missouri were processing it, which was basically, you know, the same, all the same principles, but <laughs> much less um, methodical and much less careful. You know, they were taking screens off of screen doors and kind of pushing the, the eggs through, um, through the screens into a five-gallon bucket. And, um, you know, they came up with a product. They, a lot of them knew what they were doing and, you know, came up with a product that was certainly good enough to pass muster uh-huh. um, with with customers um, who weren't experts so so they must have been doing something right but it was it was a pretty um, jerry-rigged <laughs> um, setup they had it certainly wasn't done in any kind of you know super sanitary kitchen well yeah I mean that that, that crossed my mind the whole food safety <laughs> issue of it uh, definitely resonated with me and um, but then I was also wondering um, let's the the Russian caviar if I am not mistaken has is no longer imported. I mean, they can't even, they don't even have sturgeon left in the Caspian Sea, which I think is where it originated from, right? I mean, tell us a little bit about the European market and what's happened there and why uh, these paddlefish have become so popular in terms of of smuggling. Yeah, and that's really the heart of the story. And Mm -hmm. and the reason why I, as an environmental journalist, was drawn to it, um, we have been chasing sturgeon, um, across the planet for probably thousands of years. Um, caviar has, has not always been a delicacy, but it's always been recognized as a, as a food and as a nutritious food. Right. Um, and the problem is that these fish are so large. Uh, you know, the largest ones can weigh up to a ton. Um, wow. They, more than a ton. They are so slow-growing that these are like, these are like old-growth trees. You know, once you cut them down, it takes 
year, decades, um, if not centuries, for them to be replaced in the population. So if um, people get really wild about sturgeon in a certain place, it's very easy for them to um, fish out the population to cause a local extinction within just a few years. So we've seen that story repeated over and over again, um, started in Russia when when um, caviar first got popular in Europe, thanks to Catherine the Great serving it in her court. Um, it got popular with upper-class Europeans in the 1600s, um, and that's when we first started fishing out the, the Caspian Sea. Then the trade switched to the U.S., and we, we fished out our sturgeon populations on the Atlantic coast, and then it switched back to um, the Caspian Sea, and, and now the Caspian Sea is, is really devoid um, to for all intents and purposes, there's, there are not many sturgeon left in the Caspian Sea. And so um, the reason why this trade has become, um, has shown up in the Ozarks is that there really is nowhere left. Um, there are, you know, there's some sturgeon out there for sure, but as far as making a, a reasonable commercial trade in caviar, there are not many places left on the planet where you can do that. So, right. so this, is the, this is the end game. Amazing. I mean, they do. I think you mentioned in the article they can be uh, up to 100 years old, and it probably takes them 50 years to reach sexual maturity, which is true with some other species of fish. The orange ruffy, for example, uh, lives to be about 70 or 80 years old and does not start producing uh, young until it's middle aged. From our mm-hmm. point of view, you know, like thirty-five or forty. And so, it's, and that's why that fish has has just plummeted in terms of. So it's the same deal. Isn't sturgeon a river fish? I think of it as more of a river fish than a. It's not a freshwater, they can, or they spawn they can in be freshwater, water? or um, or they can be both fresh mm-hmm. and salt water, like salmon. Right, because your uh, your players yep. in in the Ozarks <laughs> those yeah. are in the river, yeah, so and these, they're these dragging freshwater. These paddlefish are freshwater, but in yeah. the Caspian Sea, they they live. You know, they spend different life stages in saltwater and um, freshwater. Right. So now um, let's go back to the people in your story because they were very funny and colorful. The DeFreeze brothers, Spanky, I think was or yeah. Sparky. <laughs> And then, the, and then the Spanky. guy who's under... I unfortunately didn't get to meet Spanky. Oh, what um, a shame. <laughs> but uh, I wished I had. Yeah. And um, he was part of a family of um, good old boys from Tennessee, basically, who were who were fishermen um, and realized, I, I think it's thought that that um, this caviar dealer, Gabardino, um, tipped them off to the fact that, um, hey, they were making a decent living selling fish, but they could make a lot more money smuggling paddlefish caviar to him. Right. Um, and so Spanky and the rest of his family got into <laughs> the caviar smuggling business, and this was in the late 80s, um, early 90s, and they were busted in, a, in an undercover, um, in an, you know, after a lot of undercover work, very, you know, it was very cloak and dagger. Frightening under undercover work by the um, state game wardens. Yeah, so, I love um, that so story. That, those were those were Tennessee guys, and then this latest round of indictments is um, they they are all Russian and Ukrainian immigrants who, uh, like I said, they have a cultural connection to caviar, and they've gotten into the business um, perhaps through that. Yeah. Absolutely. And so uh, I just found it fascinating that they found themselves in Warsaw, Missouri, on the Osage River. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Is that where those yep. guys were operating? And how mm-hmm. big a, I mean, give us a sense of what that town is like. How big is that town? I mean, it can't be a very large urban oh, it's, center. It's right? tiny, 
tiny, a couple thousand people. And so nobody and, knew this was going um, on? I'm sorry? Nobody knew that this was happening, that they had this like smuggling business going on, or they just turned a blind eye to it, or what? Well, people did, and I spent a lot of time with the, the game warden there who wasn't involved in the undercover work because everybody knew him, but right. he um, he had been there for 30 years, so he's seen all of this unfold, and, and he said, you know, uh, people who live there did know, some of them knew a lot more than others, but uh, people suspected that something was going on because dead paddlefish started turning up everywhere, and yeah. that town makes its living on um, legitimate sport fishing for paddlefish. That's a big old funny scene in itself um, mm. where guys come from all over, mostly guys come from all over and um, and fish for these enormous fish. Um, and so they, when people saw these paddlefish turning up dead on the, on the sides of the lake with their bellies slid open and the, the eggs taken, they thought, Something weird is going on here. Legitimate fishermen wouldn't do this. What what's happening? Um, and so that's when the state, when the local game warden started hearing about it, and when they called in state and federal um, undercover agents to figure out what was going on. Well, are the sport fishermen eating the paddlefish as well? I mean, you were you were a little dubious. It sounded to me in the article about whether or yeah. not this is good eating. <laughs> it's uh, well, they say it tastes a little bit like pork. Okay. Uh, it's kind of a firm white meat. It's not the paddle fishing scene is is um, it seems like and people say it's mostly about having fun. Um, people do they don't want to waste the meat. They will take it home and eat it, um, but they are really they're not out there um, solely because they think it tastes great. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not a it's not a premium. Um, dish. You can find all sorts of crazy paddlefish recipes on the on the internet, though. Um, and interestingly, people who fish, who sport fish for paddlefish, rarely keep the eggs to eat to eat them. You know, they think they're kind of slimy and disgusting. Mm-hmm. So, what other people are cherishing as a delicacy, the guys with the fishing licenses who are taking home the paddlefish are often just slitting the paddlefish open and throwing the eggs back into the water. Oh, my God. Yeah, now, so, why, why is it that people want to catch paddlefish? I mean, they they weigh, they must weigh hundreds of pounds. You just said that a sturgeon <laughs> could go up to a ton. They're <laughs> 7 or 10 feet long. I mean, I saw the picture on the article. I mean, they're big. So if you're not yeah, going to eat the huge. eggs and you're not really loving the meat, like, why can't you just catch and release? Why don't they do that? Well, they have to catch them in this. <laughs> These are things that, as a journalist, you never expect that you're going to learn, but mm. then you do. Um, yeah. The way to catch paddlefish is that they are, they're filter feeders, so they don't like regular bait. They don't, you know, they don't go for a worm or a fly. Right. Um, they, you basically catch them by chance, by dragging a big hook and a heavy rod along the bottom of the river and hoping it will encounter a paddlefish. So once you've done that, releasing them is pretty difficult. Um, oh. And so and people just, and they are the craziest looking fish you've ever seen. They have this long snout. You know, it's about a, a third as long as its body. Yeah. Um, and they're just huge. And so I think in a way they're, they're a, a trophy. People enjoy showing them off, you know, um, showing them off to their friends that they caught this huge fish. And, and the paddlefish guys I talked to just say, it's like a, you know, it's like gambling. They, 
people just are, love the adrenaline rush that they get when they do snag a paddlefish and get to drag this monster up to the you know floor right. of their boat and show it off to everyone. But then, is there a booming business in taxidermy? So people are people stuffing and mounting their paddlefish? I, I don't mean, know. I have seen some mounted paddlefish <laughs> for sure. I don't know how booming that business is, but it's there. Yeah, so. right. I mean, you got to do something in Warsaw, Missouri. Listen, yep. Michelle, we're going to take a one minute break here for a sponsor drop, and we'll be right back to talk more about caviar and the caviar trade. Uh, Stay tuned, folks, and we'll be right back. This is Chris Howell from Cane Vineyard and Winery, calling in from Spring Mountain above the Napa Valley. Thank you for listening to this show. In our industrial world of highly processed food and wine, we support the values of Heritage Radio Network. All of us at Kane encourage you to seek out individuality and beauty in everything you eat and drink. To learn more about us, go to Kane5.com. Hey, my name is Betsy Andrews, executive editor of Severa Magazine, and I am hanging out at the coolest, most delicious place in the world, heritageradionetwork.org. Rock and roll. I haven't heard that drop before. Uh, This is What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights. Uh, My name is Katie Kiefer, and I'm talking with Michelle Nyhaus, who is an environmental reporter who just... uh, put together a really interesting and wonderful article about uh, caviar's last stand. It's about paddlefish uh, caviar, caviar smuggling, cloak and dagger material, um, and all published with uh, medium.com in partnership with the Food and Environmental Reporting Network, uh, something which I, a a publication which I strongly urge everyone to support. Um, They also have a great uh, daily thing called the Ag Insider that's written by a guy named Chuck Abbott, which I read religiously, um, and that comes on your uh, into your email box every day if you're interested in American agriculture. It's always a good read. Um, anyway, so um, let's go back to our caviar trade, Michelle, and tell us a little bit about, because you mentioned that it was, um, was it Catherine the Great who uh, was the beginning of the popularization of caviar with the aristocracy and that kind of spread throughout Western Europe? Um, give us a little bit of that sense and, and sort of let's talk about other sort of cultural touchstones like that. Sure. Um that's right. It was apparently it was more or less a um a, a countryman's lunch, you know, something you might take to the fields and spread on bread just for a quick, you know, a quick dose of calories. Um but then Catherine the Great started serving it to European visitors in the 1600s um just as a, you know, here's a classic Russian dish that you should try. Right. And as Europeans um, became wealthier due to the industrial re- due to the industrial revolution. They started thinking, well, you know, this foreign food from Russia, it must be good, <laughs> and right. so they started buying it. Even you know, sort of regardless whether they liked it or not, they just <laughs> thought it was prestigious and and fancy, and mm-hmm. and people went to enormous trouble to get caviar to Europe figuring out how to put it on ice and barrels and, and ship at these long distances. You know, at the time, that was very difficult, mm-hmm. and it made caviar even more expensive, and therefore, I, 
but I said people speculate, therefore made it even more popular because people thought, well, it's so expensive. Um, you know, there must be something to all this furor about caviar. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, at the same time, uh, you know, you, you mentioned that caviar is, is sort of the working man's lunch, just the way oysters were, you know, the working man's lunch here in New York. You know, the, 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 the I just actually did a show with somebody about oysters with Paul Greenberg, as a matter of fact, last week. Mm-hmm. And we talked mm-hmm. about his new book, American Catch. And, um, you know, the, the Northeast and the West Coast, Northwest Coast, were both absolutely paved with oysters. And people ate them by the millions and they cost a penny or half a penny a, a piece. And then, um, and then somewhere along the line, I guess, because they became harder to find and they were sort of off the air for a while, you could only get the only ones that were safe to eat were Canadian. Um, oysters suddenly became also a very luxurious treat uh, for the aristocracy on both sides of the ocean. And I wondered if you wanted to um, like hazard a guess about, you know, did caviar and oysters sort of get popular together for rich people or was it just two completely separate things? But, you know, now you think of caviar, oysters and foie gras as the three yes. sort of ultimate luxurious items. In fact, my friend Catherine Alford wrote a book. I think it's called Caviar It's called what? I think she, there's a friend of mine who runs the Food Network Kitchen and she wrote a book, which I believe is Caviar, Oysters, and Foie Gras. I think that's a uh-huh. cookbook. Yeah. <laughs> right. And, uh, and abalone is another one in there. And I think that, oh, really? uh, I, that. that I mean, some, some anthropologist or psychologist could probably speculate on why all of these foods that are so expensive are also vaguely disgusting. You know, they're sort of vaguely yes. uh, forbidden and slimy and things you might yes. eat, might be, you know, might be dared to eat in another situation. They're somehow given, they somehow acquire this allure. So maybe it's the allure of the forbidden, the allure, or, yeah. or the theory that truly gourmet things are always on the edge of being spoiled or, or disgusting, and that's what makes them so good. I, I guess. I don't quite know what's going on there with, with just the, the, the taste and the texture appeal of it. Um, caviar is a, it's a slightly different story from oysters and, say, lobster, where they were disparaged and then they rose when they when they got rare, when they were fished out. Right. They they rose in popularity. Caviar rose in popularity before it became rare. And I think it was really just the, the, the lure of a foreign delicacy in Europe that, that gave it that stature at first. I think that's Certainly it, it has become more expensive as it's gotten rarer, and I think that's only added to its cachet. Absolutely. Well, the only... <laughs> I'm not a big fan myself. And um, and the thing that I always think of when I think about caviar is that incredibly funny scene in the movie Big with Tom Hanks. Do you remember that movie? <laughs> Do you remember? Yes. He's like, and he's supposed to be a grown-up, but he's really a little boy in a man's body. And he has a big bite uh-huh. of caviar. <laughs> I mean, I literally wet right. my pants in the movie theater when I saw that. Because that, frankly, was kind of more or less my response to it as well. But um, right. I've, I've grown up a certain a emperor's new clothes uh, phenomenon going on. I mean, I, I do believe so. what the chefs say, you know, that these are these are exotic tastes. And, you know, if you have a, a well-developed gourmet palate that you appreciate them. But there's also a certain amount of, well, every, like, you know, just like the Europeans in the 16 and 1700s saying, well, everybody likes this and it's very expensive. It must be good. Right, <laughs> you know? exactly. Everybody yeah. eating shellfish or, or lobster, 
everybody eating oysters or lobster and kind of looking at each other and going, well, okay, I guess this is what we eat now. I guess this is what is fancy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm, uh, yeah. Yeah. They don't. Can, no. Although I do love foie gras. But um, let's talk for a minute about sturgeon just as a category of fish that has been so wildly overfished. We touched on that in the first half. But there are lots and lots of different subcategories besides paddlefish. There's white sturgeon, pallid sturgeon, Chinese sturgeon, American sturgeon. What's happening with all of those other breeds? Um, and do they they produce um, eggs that everyone wants to eat, or are some uh, some species better than others in terms of the kinds of eggs that they produce? And and what's going to happen to them in the future? If I mean, are they are they re- returning? Are they resurgent? Is there farming? What kind of conservation? Yeah, there are. Um, yes, there are many different um, sturgeon species. Uh, the IUCN, which is the International Union of Conservation for Nature. And that's an intergovernmental body that looks at species worldwide, considers sturgeon to be the most endangered family of, mm. of animals um, anywhere on the planet. So none of them are doing well. Some are doing better than others. Some are better protected than others. Mm-hmm. Um, the most sort of sought-after kind of caviar are the, is the beluga caviar, which comes from the beluga sturgeon, and then the savruga caviar, which is another kind from the Caspian Sea. And, and those are both heavily, heavily restricted um, internationally. Um, it's impossible to get those kinds of caviar in the U.S. now mm-hmm. because they're so rare, and that has helped somewhat. But as far as a commercial fishery, a viable commercial fishery for some of those species, it's not going to happen for generations, if ever. We do have some sturgeon species in the U.S. They are highly endangered. Um, and there is, you know, a glimmer of hope as far as for caviar lovers. Um, you know, these species are still very much in trouble in the wild. But there is a, a growing industry in um, sturgeon farming and farms caviar. So, and I've spoken to chefs who say, Yes, you know, this caviar, these techniques, these farming techniques have been refined until this caviar is basically indistinguishable from wild caviar. And people haven't gotten over their, the allure of wild caviar, but that's really just a psychological barrier. Uh, this, if you, if you blind taste tested farmed caviar that's done right versus wild caviar, high grade wild caviar, you couldn't tell the difference. And in some cases, you might think this farmed caviar is better. Wow, amazing. And do does caviar have a, I don't know if I should ask you this because, I mean, you're not a chef, but but is that sense of <laughs> miroir, you know, that everybody talks about with um, with seafood and especially with oysters, does caviar have that same kind of, um, you know, each species or depending on where it comes from has an individual and specific taste or is it, mm, is that? Have is, its, sense of, its sense of place. Yeah. Um, yes. Apparently, and I, yeah, as you said, I'm not a chef, so I can't speak to that with authority, but it, apparently it does. And and one of the chefs I spoke to said, well, paddlefish caviar, you know, yeah. it kind of tastes like lake water, <laughs> uh, which is mm. not really what you're going for. <laughs> you know, that's not the exotic marine taste that people are looking for in caviar. So yeah. people who know caviar can tell can tell that paddlefish caviar is not is not the top not grade. Not as good, yeah. Like I said. People who aren't familiar with it will be um, can be convinced otherwise. I'm remembering that Iran at one time was a tremendous exporter of caviar, and that's right. What was their breed? What kind of what was their was that Ocetra that they made? 
Because I remember I believe so. Um, they did a lot of fishing in the Caspian Sea. Ah. Um, and at, at one point, um, there was a there was a brief period not too long ago when Iranian caviar was available in the U.S. And, and it was, you know, it's very good. It's comparable mm-hmm. to Russian caviar because it comes from the same place, from the Caspian Sea. Um, so, but now it's no longer available. Yeah. Well, I mean, the Caspian Sea is heavily polluted, if I'm not mistaken, isn't it? So there's yes, a, there's a lot, lot of environmental stuff. problems in the Caspian Sea. So yeah. overfishing is just one of the problems that sturgeon are facing, which is one reason why these you know, these fish have bounced back before, but, and, you know, it's not impossible that they will again, but they are facing a more complicated suite of problems than they were in the past. And let's talk for a second about their spawning, because they swim upstream like salmon, and so um, damming up rivers, which we did with great abandon in the 50s and 60s in order to generate electricity and whatnot, um, that's had a big impact on uh, sturgeon populations as well, hasn't it? That's right, and in the Missouri River in particular, you know, we did we dammed that, um, as you say, with abandon, and that has had a big effect on native sturgeon populations in the Missouri and on paddlefish. Uh, and the paddlefish population in Missouri that people were poaching from is actually supplemented by hatchery fish itself because they have lost access to their natural spawning grounds. Um, they can't, they, they will try and swim upstream and they'll run into a dam and you can find them gathered at the dam trying to trying to make their way upstream. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Well, a couple of weeks ago, I had a guy on who was uh, from the Natural Resources Defense Council who's working on um, sort of re- reintroducing salmon to the San Joaquin River. And he described, uh, you know, occasions where they are literally in places where the fish cannot make it upstream, either because the water level is so low or because there is a dam in the way. They will literally scoop up the fish and transport them to, uh, you know, higher up on the river so they can, you know, continue to make their way up to their spawning grounds. I suppose, you know, if people were as uh, devoted to the idea of paddlefish as people are to the idea of salmon, we might do that. Um, What do you think the impact, the environmental impact on losing a fish like paddlefish, a really big feeder, filter, did you say they're a filter feeder? Yeah. Yeah, they are. So what, are they like oysters? They clean the water? Well, they eat um, invertebrates and, Mm -hmm. you know, just very small animals that live in the river. And people don't really know their invite, you know, their place in the ecosystem. Um, they may be, in some senses, a, a relic species where they, you know, they, they are extremely old evolutionarily. People are always saying they're older than the dinosaurs, which is true. You know, they've wow. been around for that long. Yeah. Um, and so... You know, it's hard to make a utilitarian argument as to, well, we need this, we need these fish to clean the water, we need these fish for, because, you know, they're an important part of the food chain. We, they may well be, but we don't know that. Um, I think there's a moral argument to be made that something that's been around for so long, that's so big, such a grand part of the ecosystem, um, is not something that should be killed off for a luxury product. Yeah, I would make that argument with you. I'd be right in the front lines on that one. I mean, I, I you know, I find these, you know, these, uh, I don't know, I, I'm not going to get into that discussion with you, but it's just like I, the need to sort of eat something because I don't know why it's really cool or whatever. I don't know. I just, I don't get it. It's, it's just yeah. not that great. Well, I think we're always in search of, of the new, you know, just yeah. 
as a journalist, I'm always trying to put myself in, in other people's shoes. And I think the view from, from those shoes is that uh, the new is irresistible and that the exotic is irresistible. And yeah. um, this happens to be something that for a, a combination of reasons we have chosen to chase to the ends of the earth. And the end of the earth is the Ozarks. Yeah. So who knew? Here we are. Here we are. Yeah, I always think of that as. Pink and I'm country. sure Catherine the Great never would have predicted that, but here we are. I'm sure she wouldn't have. Um, well, maybe we should wrap it up there because that seems like a good spot. Can you you want to promote, promote, promote? You have a website. You have Fern. You have other things that you're working on. Tell us what's going on. How do people find more out about you and about this article? Well, I was supported in the reporting and writing of this article by FERN, which is the Food and Environment Reporting Network, um, and they are at thefern.org. And also, the story was published uh, by our publishing partner, medium.com, and that's just medium.com. You can find it there. You can search for the article there. It's called uh-huh. Caviar's Last Stand. And then my website is michellemyhouse.com, and I have a funny last name. It's spelled N-I-J-H-U-I-S, so michellemyhouse.com. Cool. You're Dutch. Is that a Dutch Dutch. name? Yeah. I don't speak it, but I am Dutch. (laughs) Well, thank you so much for joining me today. Uh, I really enjoyed this piece. I thought it was great. And uh, certainly this is a really fun interview. Uh, Definitely off my beaten track for sure. I hope people enjoyed it as well. Um, So I will be um, going to Australia in a couple of days, actually, at the end of this week. Uh, So we'll be running a couple of reruns, I suppose. Um, But I'll be reporting on the cattle industry there for Food Arts Magazine. I'm going to take a a junket with a bunch of chefs. And uh, I'll be visiting a lot of packing plants and cattle ranches and sheep ranches, among other things. Um, So I'll have plenty to say about that. I'm hoping to put together a few programs on that subject. And then the other thing I wanted to just mention to my regular listeners, um, and that is that uh, we'll be following up in a few weeks on a couple of new developments that have just uh, caught my eye. Um, Many of you know that I've been on top of this story called uh, about poultry inspection. It's now called the new poultry safety New Poultry Inspection System. Sorry about that. New Poultry Inspection System, which was uh, formerly known as HIMP, which was an acronym that was uh, you know, part of the Hazard Analysis and Critical Control Point HACCP program, which has been around for quite a while. Anyway, this unfortunate um, new development in the poultry industry, which will eventually be adopted by other industries in the livestock sector, uh, is um, the one in which the FDA inspector or the USDA inspectors have been taken off of of the production lines in broiler factories and uh, poultry processing plants and put at the end of the line where they will swab possibly, uh, you know, 10 birds an hour uh, for disease. Meanwhile, they're processing 140 birds per minute. The only silver lining to this uh, particular cloud in our food safety horizon is that they didn't speed up the chain speed to 175, which was what the original legislation called for. But um, the, the hemp model has now been passed into uh, action. Uh, Companies, poultry companies can opt in or out. You can be sure that they will be opting in in droves uh, because essentially the fox is now guarding the hen house. Um, So uh, just be aware of that when you're uh, buying and cooking chickens. Um, And then the other thing that caught my eye um, and which I got a press release from the Natural Resources Defense Council about is another story that I've covered a lot and that is um, antibiotics in our food chain, uh, specifically in livestock. And the NRDC had brought a suit against
against uh, the FDA for failing to protect us, essentially, from um, what have been dubbed in the media superbugs. They're not really superbugs, but they are multidrug-resistant pathogens uh, brought about by the excessive use of antibiotics in the food chain. And um, the NRDC has now lost this case in court, um, which is a great blow to them. They've been uh, working on this case for several years. Um, In the next few weeks, when I get back from Australia, I will definitely be bringing on somebody from NRDC to talk about this. Uh, They are still in the process of sorting out what their appeal is going to be, etc. Otherwise, um, we would have been talking about it today instead of our wonderful interview with Michelle Nyhaus about paddlefish, which I totally enjoyed. So um, thanks for listening. I'll be back in a few weeks, um, hopefully with some really interesting new material. And uh, thanks to my sponsor, Kane Winery, and to my engineer, Jack Inslee, always. And I'll see you in a few weeks. Enjoy the rest of August. Take care, folks. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archive programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can email us questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. <laughs>